Welcome to Beggar's Bread, a podcast where we invite Christians and truth seekers to engage with thoughtful sources in an age of disinformation. Our name is inspired by the quote, or from the quote. <laughs> oh my gosh, I read it wrong. <laughs> Whatever, we're just going. <laughs> Our name is inspired by the quote by D. Oh my goodness. By D.T. Niles. Evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Each week, we recommend a source for you, either a sermon, podcast, or video. This week, we bring you Macro House Management. Hey, Nick, should we, should we nix this? Or is this good? Now they're going to this... know that we don't have a pre recorded intro. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, here we are, Luke from Wisconsin and Nick from North Carolina. And Hello. This week, we talking about economics. Specifically, we recommend to you Fight of the Century, Keynes versus Hayek, round two. Uh, that's a YouTube video that we are recommending this week, as always, be in the show notes. And I studied economics in college, uh, so I, ha- I have a couple of thoughts on this you know a couple but i'm curious nick why don't you open us up tell us what did you think of these two dudes in this youtube video uh as a lay economist yeah yeah as a lay economist tell us tell us nick all the wisdom well i mean going off of just the i mean you can even say just going off of like those initial impressions of the video itself and like you know, the boxing round, see who like won ultimately. Um, there's like some, there's some nuance to it, right? Because you have Keynes, I think, wait, should I spoil it? Oh yeah, you can spoil it. They, they've can been I spoil it? I was like, it's, I was like, it's, they've been dead. Yeah, yeah, they've been around for a hot second. Yeah, but they show like, like he wins the fight, but like, then they have everybody, you know, like surrounding Hayek as well. It's, and then they like look at each other and it's like, oh, didn't expect this to happen, you know? And so I think it kind of shows how, like, the history has really respected Hayek a little bit more in, like, more recent years, um, if I interpreted that correctly. Uh, sort of. There's some commentary on it because, I mean, in the actual physical fight, Hayek kind of beats up Kane's. Um, but then like the ref picks up Kane's off the ground and raises his hand like as if he won. Um, so the commentary there is a lot of governments use Keynesian economics and Hayek, uh, is not really that his sort of economics, a lot of times referred to as the Austrian, Austrian economics. It's a, just because that's, it originated in Austria. Um, well, let me, okay, let me put it this way before I get too far. Just super basic summary of these two theories, you know, because that's what we're all about doing. Just super basic summaries. Last week it was complementarianism, egalitarianism. This week it's Keynesian economics and Austrian economics. Let's roll so, and this is all like post yeah. um, depression, right? Uh, well, honestly, my history is not that great on these two, but Keynes often used the depression in World War II in explaining his theory and uh, as like his his primary argument and Hayek critiques that. And well, and the rap video isn't actually Keynes and Hayek. It's two like college students or whoever acting as them rap battling and boxing. So very funny, but Hayek had more hair in reality than in the the video. Actually, I looked him up. I was like, Hmm, not the same. I did not know that. Thank you for adding that piece of information. Well, if I can't talk economics, I can talk about hair. I'll go there you that. go. Uh, 
<laughs> so Keynesian economics 101, this is, again, super broad strokes. Uh, government oversight is good for an economy. Austrian economics, government involvement will hinder economic success. So, okay, very, very broad. Uh, like just Keynesian economic, a little bit more involved, a little bit hands-on with the government and the economy. Austrian economics, high, uh, saying, hey, keep your hands off. Um, these actually do not perfectly map onto our ideologies like progressive or conservative or libertarian. Although I would say Hayek's school of thought is very strong, strongly related to libertarian uh, thinking in our current political sphere. But right. actually, but doesn't he also have a um, like, didn't he stress the importance of having like a strong social security net? For like people experiencing poverty, I do not. Said so people wouldn't like experience the most extreme forms of poverty. I honestly have not studied that, so I I honestly don't know. Um, but I have. Ooh, actually, before I go any further, let me let me just pull in our co-listener because this is a, a guy. His name is Jack from Arizona, and Jack says the quote of the whole video, and this is the quote he's saying. So we're, we're quoting him, quoting somebody else. Anyway, the question I ponder is, who plans for whom? Do I plan for myself or leave it to you? And he's quoting Hayek. Anyway, okay. And then he says, the reality is that America is built on the notion that everybody has independent agency, the ability to create, enact change, and build economic value. This includes both the government and the collective private. Hayek is right. The economy is organic, and there are all sorts of microeconomic forces that shape how market pricing works. If lessons from Wall Street tell us anything, it's that you really can't holistically engineer markets top-down. There are too many independent agents to create a one-size-fits-all plan. That said, Keynes is right that the government does also have agency to participate in the free market, and when they do, they're the 100-pound gorilla in the room. The government can create demand, can spend, can, and can employ, just like private institutions can. They have more breadth and power than anybody else, too. But in the grand scope of the economic game, the principles of democracy demand that the government remains a large player rather than the master controller. Uh, so thank you, for thank you, Jack, for that uh, co-listening review slash trailer. And I, I will say Jack uh, has studied economics, so... He knows a lot of stuff. So if you're thinking like, oh my gosh, you asked a random dude, it's like, well, not not entirely. You kind of asked somebody. He's somewhat informed, yeah. <laughs> Indeed. So thank you again, <laughs> um, Jack. And then I wanted to, so I want to just add, if, you know, as Christians thinking about these things, um, I, I've actually found, so definitely lots of Christians have studied, you know, all sorts of things with poverty and economics. But um I've just been trying to find examples of Keynesian and Austrian economics in the Bible. And I'm not sure that there's any perfect map because it'd be, it'd be a little anachronistic. In other words, like, you know, taking Israelite, like Old Testament time economic phenomenon and applying modern economic theories don't perfectly mesh because, well, let me just give you the first example. So I have basically one example for each of something I've been thinking about. So we have Joseph in Egypt, crash course, biblical literacy. Uh, Joseph 
gets it, well let me how much do we want to explain okay basically joseph is <laughs> second in command of egypt <laughs> all right we'll just say that uh he's a hebrew so he's an israelite um and basically pharaoh so the guy in charge has this dream or this is actually what gets joseph put second in command pharaoh's got this dream and there are seven fat cows that get eaten by seven skinny cows and there's some other stuff as well. But basically, Joseph is like, all right, this is the meaning of your dream. There's going to be seven really good years of uh, like great harvest. And this is, you know, a basically agrarian-based society. And then there's going to be seven years of famine. So you better prepare. And Pharaoh's like, hey, you're pretty good at interpreting dreams. Maybe you're good at running my economy. So he puts him in charge and tells everybody, do what he tells, <laughs> do what he tells you to do. And so... And here I'm just quoting from Genesis 41, verses 26, 27. Oh, this is actually the dreams. I guess I probably should have quoted this earlier. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain, oh, yeah, that's the other part of it, are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. So anyway, long story short, Joseph takes a whole bunch of grain and he stuffs it away in a warehouse. So this is very much so state intervention. Joseph is like, all right, all this grain, we're going to store it away for years. And then during the famine, of course, he sells it to people because they are all starving because they don't have any food. Now, you might be sitting there going, okay, Luke, that's interesting. I agree. State intervention definitely helps people. Seven years that were good, seven years that were bad. Joseph helped people. But if you're a more Austrian school of economics, you might be thinking, well, that had divine revelation. I mean, you can't just know all the time how the market is going to act. And I would be like, you're absolutely right. I agree with you. So that's that's one part of my little application that, again, it doesn't map on perfectly because we don't have divine revelation of market forces in the future. But I would say at the same time, in enormous economies that we do have currently in, in modern states, it would be a little silly to not expect that there will be difficult times ahead for, you know, unforeseen reasons. Like, I don't know, a worldwide pandemic. Ponder. <laughs> so, mm, um, so, so, I mean, I'm just, I'm not trying to be super, you know, sarcastic, but I am trying to say like, okay, you're totally right. Joseph had the advantage of God telling him through the dream, Pharaoh's dream, like, all right, it's going to be bad after it's good. But in another way, we have that advantage of knowing things are unforeseen and there's going to be difficult times again. As Grandma would say, save up for a rainy day. Anyway, uh, the other school of thought, Austrian economics. Another thing I just want to mention in uh, scripture comes from just this concept in Exodus 18. And basically, backstory, Moses is leading the Israelites and Every day, he's just judging all these Israelites because they've got conflict because they're people. And he's deciding what is good for all these different conflicts. And his uncle, Jethro, which is a pretty cool name, I would say. I don't know. Maybe we have a Jethro. If there's anyone listening that your name is Jethro, shout out to your name. It's cool. And if you're like, I don't like it when people shout out my name, then I'm sorry. Um, I take it back. Anyway, the... <laughs> oh, man. I... <laughs> So Moses is doing this, and his father-in-law, um, he said, this isn't the way you're supposed to do things. 
Um, so you're, you, you can't handle all this. So he says, so Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men of, out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. So anyway, Moses is like, oh, great advice, father-in-law. And that was in Exodus 18, verses 24 through 27, if you want to proof text that. Um, and this principle has been kind of formally recognized as what's called subsidiarity. Uh, it's often in the Catholic Church, it might be called subsidiarity. Subsidiarity is an organizing principle. I'm just quoting from Wikipedia. That matters ought to be handled by the smallest, lowest, or least centralized competent authority. So this is very much so in line with this kind of Austrian school of thinking like, hey, I don't want decisions centralized because they can't possibly take into account all these different variables, whereas individuals are able to make firsthand decisions. So again, and you might be thinking, well, Luke, here's a critique of my scripture right here. You're like, Luke, that has nothing to do with economics. That has everything to do with the judiciary, which, I mean, you are correct. We do have different ranges of courts, all these things, very historical, very biblical, blah, blah, blah. I got you. But it's the same idea. It's decision-making. So if it's economic decision-making or moral legal decision-making, it's still decision-making. So I would contend that it applies across the different disciplines. But anyway, <laughs> do you have any more news about their facial hair, Nick? Because I think most of the audience is probably like, this is so boring. <laughs> no, I think it's mostly mustaches at that point. So you can't really go much further than that as far as facial hair is concerned. <laughs> <laughs> well that's all i got um except for to say just real briefly i don't necessarily have a school of thought that i think is like 100 percent correct um i don't think one of these schools of thought is the biblical economic school of thought uh i do think that's worth saying um but i yeah lest i be misunderstood i do think there are some concepts from each of these schools of thought that are really helpful and uh, possibly very applicable. Oh, wait, there is one last thing. Okay, this is actually exciting. Sorry, Nick. I, <laughs> I know you were like, oh, good, we're wrapping up. I wanted to move on to the next episode. But it is, no, not so fast. Okay, oh, no. I learned this from an engineer. So before you all be like, oh, I don't study economics, so I don't think about this stuff. I learned about this from an engineer, and it is fascinating. So, okay, bear with me here. Keynesian economics, again, like we kind of talked about earlier, is probably the most commonly practiced among uh, current uh, democratic republics across the world, or possibly even other governments. I don't know. I, I don't study it enough to make that statement. But um, this engineer was like, Keynesian economics doesn't actually work that well. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. What, where in the world did this come from? But he was actually giving me advice. I was about to go to college and study economics. And he was like, here's why it, it's difficult to implement because we live in a society where we elect our leaders, it will always be difficult for someone to get elected when they say they're going to raise taxes. But if you're going to run an economy successfully with a Keynesian model, 
basically the idea is that you tax more when the economy is doing well. So, you know, the seven years of feasting in, in Egypt, and then that you tax less and you stimulate the economy when there is a bust like the seven years of famine in Egypt, just to borrow that analogy. So I thought that was very insightful. Um, obviously, if you're a king, if you have all the decision-making power and people don't elect you or oust you, you can run Keynesian economics all day Like, because it's like, hey, look, they can't out me from, from government. But if you live in a democratic republic where you are elected, you're not going to be very popular if you say, we need to raise taxes. Um, so that is one thing I just wanted to mention, that economics does not exist in a vacuum. It is very much so connected with the rest of our lives because oh this actually man all these things are just popping back in my head um the whole idea of the title of this episode macro house management is because the root word for economics is the management of a household so like anything with a household there's all these different things going on right like and people run their households differently right i mean Nick and I did not grow up in the same household. I can guarantee if we were to just start talking about like, oh, what did your mom do when you were growing up? What did your dad do when you were growing up? Uh, like, obviously, we're going to have different stories. And that's similar in ways with economics. There's not necessarily a perfect way to do it. But I will say that economics does not exist in a vacuum. It's affected by political and sometimes social phenomenon as well. So anyway, there's my hot take for the day. <laughs> what'd you eat for lunch things? nick <laughs> what would i eat for lunch economics. no 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 economics. so much economics not really i did like a small crash course and i was like ah yeah i'll let luke take this one <laughs> but i think it's it's interesting in that what we perceive now today is the two primary political parties in the united states um have grappled over these issues in very interesting ways throughout various, you know, economic crises. And they've kind of stood along these lines, but at the same time, they're not necessarily strict adherence to it either. Um, which is why I think it is interesting and important to kind of look back at these and see, you know, the nuances of both and how both can be applicable, like we said, within um, an organic economic life that is not in a vacuum as you said before yes definitely uh very woven through our lives so anyway thanks for listening to me rant on economics everybody uh <laughs> thanks for coming here for macro house management next week we're coming back with jesus the wine guy we'll see you next week <laughs>